We saw that the, the miracle story of John 6, the sign of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with just one small child's lunch, that, that miracle took place up in the, the, the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and the events following, including the Bread of Life discourse, took place again on the north shore of Galilee, that sermon taking place in the synagogue there of Capernaum. Uh, we said that, that that Passover, which early in chapter six we are told it is the Passover, marks the, the one year countdown point for the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. His um, crucifixion will take place on a Friday before the Passover Sabbath, one year after the feeding of the 5,000. We have in chapter seven a a two-word fast forward. (laughs) As we look this morning at events that take place or a conversation that takes place around the time of the Feast of the Booths. We'll talk more about the Feast of the Booths and what that represented in the Beyond the Notes podcast, which will be recorded early this week and will go out, I think, on Tuesday morning. But for now, I want us to look at these first 13 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Let's let's read God's word together. John chapter seven, beginning in verse one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And as I consider this paragraph in God's word and, uh, and seek for what might be a, a sort of a unifying theme and idea, it seemed overwhelming to me that I would speak to you this morning as I unfold this passage on the theme of of contentment. 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 Contentment arises from the profound awareness that God is in charge of everything, including my immediate circumstances. Therefore, 
I do not have to be. I can be content. Now we'll see in the very first point that does not equate to apathy or laziness. As we look at Roman numeral one, Jesus demonstrates contentment to wait for the Father's timing. Jesus' mission on earth to seek and save the lost is going to be consummated in Jerusalem when finally the, the collision course that has long been established between Jesus and the Jewish leaders comes to a head at, at the, the moment when they succeed in crucifying him. And more strategically, he succeeds in being crucified for the sins of his people. But that is not yet. Letter A under, under row number one, the period. This, this, these first two words in chapter seven, after this, speak to a period of about seven months. The Passover is back in the spring of the year. The Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles is somewhere around late, late September, early October. And so about seven months elapse in those two words after this. So Jesus, during that seven months, is, is aware that there is, there is no reason for him to yet even put in an appearance anywhere near Jerusalem, the region of Judea spoken about in verse one. He would not go about in Judea. So the period is seven months. You and I live in a generation that's accustomed to instant microwave. Uh, if I want to go in to a drive-thru, I don't want two cars ahead of me. The whole point of the drive-thru is that I barely have to tap my brakes to get my food. And that's the, the pace at which our expectations tend to drive us. Jesus waited for seven months for his next appearance in Jerusalem. But he was not inert during that time. Letter B, the pursuits. While waiting, as I say on your outline, while waiting for the time to once again approach Jerusalem, Jesus was anything but inactive. Contentment is patient, but contentment isn't just parked. These, these months, this seven-month period in the ministry of Jesus is covered in uh, chapters 15 through 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 7 through 9 of the Gospel of Mark, and the bulk of Luke chapter 9. In this seven-month period, we have another miraculous feeding miracle, the so-called feeding of the 4,000. We have the transfiguration where Jesus gives a, a, a good look at himself as he eternally is to Peter, James, and John there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have numerous healing miracles in this seven months. And while there are some public discourses most of this seven months is spent in, in private teaching of the 12. What it's not spent doing is being impatient. What it's not spent doing also is being inert. 
you've got something that you're waiting for the Lord, for his timing, be content. Be patient. But don't be parked. We have a standing mission. We have a standing set of priorities. We have business to be about. The world needs to hear about Jesus. So maybe you're seeking God's will or God's leadership for some next major chapter in your life. Good. Wait for him. Wait for him from a core of contentment. But don't be inactive, seeking his glory and fulfilling his mission. Thus, let her see the purpose. What is the purpose of this time period? To align with his father's will. To align with his father's will and to demonstrate that with his timing, his obedience, his endurance, and his faithfulness. There are some things that Jesus specifically did that you can't do. You can't go about feeding whole hillside throngs of people from one small lunch. You can't go about um, healing miraculously as he did. You are neither Christ nor one of his apostles. But you can demonstrate obedience, endurance, and faithfulness in circumstances where perhaps timing or perhaps just his will, not yours, is prevailing at a given moment. We see contentment to wait for the Father's timing. Roman numeral two, we also see contentment to withstand the world's opposition. There are others who show up in verses two through nine who have, who have a whole lot better idea of what Jesus ought to be doing. A whole lot better idea of what, of what Jesus should be, should be um, pursuing. Their ideas disagree with what God the Father has. And it's, it's interesting, while we may expect opposition to come at us from, from those who are absolutely of the world, who are unapologetically opponents of the gospel and thus opponents of, of much of what our life is about, opposition can come in way sneakier, as I put it in the notes, way sneakier packages. Here, the opposition comes from Jesus' biological half-brothers. Uh, thus, letter A, unbelieving family who patronize your faith. See it in verse three. His brothers, these, by the way, are the biological half-brothers of Jesus. They are not born without a human father as he was. These are the biological children of Mary and Joseph. They're named, if, you, uh, if you're curious, they're named in Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3. Jo James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude, same, same guy. Here, basically, they say to Jesus, look, you have demonstrated you can draw a big crowd and do big stuff. Why are you laying low? You need to be in Jerusalem where the action is. I mean, if you're going to up your Messiah game, 
Jerusalem is the place you ought to go to up your Messiah game. Now, it could be that they're being sheerly patronizing, or it could be that like most in Israel at this time, they're looking for a political Messiah. Either way, Jesus, you ought to go do that. Patronizing. She is, uh, she has passed away now. Um, the, the, the time when I most experienced the patronizing of my faith by somebody that was in my own family, I had a great aunt. She, she by all accounts, was a, was a godly lady. I had gone through a crisis in my own faith as a much, much younger man about the time I started college. And I've shared this as part of sort of the long form of my testimony. And through that crisis in my faith, I became aware of the academic discipline of, of creation science and became absolutely convinced that, that the real science supports the biblical account of an earth created in six days flat not that many thousands of years ago. And uh, if that's different than what you feel, I invite you into this challenge. You need to be clear what is the most reliable source of truth in your life. The Word of God or the Discovery Channel? And if you're letting the Discovery Channel tell you how you're supposed to understand God's Word, your faith is in peril. And I pity any young people or children that are under your influence because you are undermining rather than supporting their, if they, look, if we can't believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3, why in the world should we believe the Gospel of John chapters 1, 2, and 3? At any rate, I was in the home of this great aunt explaining to her how I had come to these convictions that, that God's word was true and that creation happened the way God described it and all sorts. And she, she smiled and nodded and at the end of all that, she said, oh, Russell, you used to be so intelligent. Hey, thank you. And you will have people in your life who will undercut, patronize, mock, and it won't always be the sworn enemies of the cross. Let her be people who say they know you but badly misread your motives. Verse four, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Again, up your Messiah game. Isn't that what you're about? They, uh, they thought they understood what was driving Jesus. They thought that if they could tag Jesus as having ambition for fame, something we'll talk about in a moment, they had Jesus figured out. But Jesus' ambition was to do the will of the Father, not to just parade himself as a big deal. The one person who ever lived whose fame ought be maximized at this moment was hanging back until the time of his father's will. They misread his motives and tried to push him. Then let her see people who, who might call themselves believers but aren't. 
It's clear, verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said, my time's not yet come. But then he made sort of an enigmatic statement. Let me take a second to explain it. Your time is always here. What does that mean? Well, read on. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That is, you fit right in with the world. You can go anywhere. Everywhere you go in the world, you're right at home. You're not having to concern yourself with, with the timing of events on the scale of what I have to concern myself with. You tumble right along with the world's currents because that's right where you're at home. For me, it's remarkably different. I did add in my notes uh, people who might, let her see, people who might call themselves believers but aren't. But then I wrote, though one day they may be. I added that, that was free. Because here's what we know about the four half-brothers of Jesus. After the resurrection, they were saved. How can they have not believed in him during his life? Well, I, I offer you this. It's small, but it may, it may, in fact, be a justification. Anybody here raised in the household with an overperforming older sibling? You weren't the oldest, and the one that was the oldest always got everything right. Some of y'all raised your hands. We don't wonder, do we? We don't wonder why they didn't believe. Jesus' room is always straight. Jesus never breaks curfew. Jesus says, yes ma'am and no ma'am all the time. What's wrong with you? I think if you have Jesus for an older brother, you might get a little bit frustrated. My older brother was Van, and Van is not Jesus. Top of his class, never broke curfew, never gave mom and dad any serious grief. Russell, what is wrong with you compared to him is something I heard a lot. Sorry, mom and dad, not too much. I'm not scarred for life, but you have to admit, y'all gave Van an easier time, although Van also gave you an easier time. And I say that because mama watches thee. They got saved, all four of them. In fact, two of the four of them went on to write books in your New Testament. Jesus' oldest half-brother, James, wrote the book of James, came to be the first post-apostolic pastor of the church at Jerusalem. We studied his book, James, earlier this year. And his, his younger brother, uh, his youngest brother, Jude, wrote the book of Jude, tucked in right before the book of Revelation in your New Testament. They didn't believe yet, but they came to believe, and that was a gracious thing. And then finally, Roman numeral three, contentment to withdraw from the public eye. And I put this in your notes. Before we go on, we have to deal with a slight elephant in the room this text creates. Did Jesus lie? Because in verse eight, he says, I'm not going up to this feast. In verse 10, well, he went up to the feast. So what's going on there? Uh, it's, a, it's a significant question. Interpreters of this part of the Gospel of John spend a lot of ink on this. Let me try. When they went to the feast, given that there were at least four brothers, Mary was still alive, so four brothers and mom, and all that would have been, been involved in their household, they would have gone to the Feast of Tabernacles from Galilee to Judea in a big public processional. A... Uh, a, a, a parade of sorts. 
And certainly, Jesus is going to enter the city of Jerusalem as part of a large processional a week before Passover, some months from now. But he's not going at this time. He's not going with them. In fact, about half of the, of the handwritten manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John, say in verse 8, I am not yet going up to this feast. That probably is, is good interpretive clarification. Jesus did not declare in the absolute, I am not attending the Feast of Tabernacles. But I'm not going on your timing and I'm not going as part of your big parade is the idea, which I think is clarified in verse 10 when it says he went up, not publicly, but in private. He slipped quietly into Jerusalem, which actually speaks to our third point. He was content to withdraw for a moment from the public eye. Everybody likes to be noticed. Everybody likes to be recognized. I'm not suggesting anybody ever do this ever again. I am not fishing for it. I'm not suggesting it. But I don't mind it. It happens not often, but from time to time. I'll be in a restaurant with Gail or sometimes with a friend, breakfast or lunch. And I'll be impatiently waiting for the check to appear, only to find out somebody has spotted me from across the room and taken care of it. Generally, I don't know who did it, so thank you. I'm quite content if it never happens again, but I'm human, and I don't mind it when it does. Everybody likes to be recognized. Everybody likes to be noticed. And yet, if the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the love of fame is awfully close. The desire to be prominent, the desire to be somebody will take you straight to Weirdsville. It'll turn you into a, into a self-oriented idolater. Here, the one whose case for fame is the most thoroughly justified in history demonstrates a capacity to be quiet for a moment. Letter A, can I stay quiet even when people are curious? Well, well you understand, people want to know. So I, so I have to post every, every meal Every conversation, every mood swing, people just want to know, and I have to respond to my public. Jesus didn't. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Verse 11, he was not in public, he was in private. He, he was able to stay quiet even when people were curious. Letter B, can I, can I stay at peace even when people are saying untrue things about me? Ooh, this is hard. They're lying about me out there. I've got to jump out there big and loud and correct them. Jesus didn't. Look at verse 12. 
There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Learn this. When there's a bunch of buzz out there and people are lying and saying unkind things about you, anybody who's really your friend doesn't believe it. Anybody who's really your enemy is going to believe it already. And you're not going to change one single mind by you getting big and loud and trying to run about stomping every bit of gossipy nonsense that's out there about you. Your friends don't need you to do that. Your enemies won't listen while you do that. So the question becomes, for whom are you doing it? Often, the love of the sound of our own voices. Stay at peace. Be content. Haters gonna hate. (laughs) Wow, I didn't think I'd ever quote that in a sermon. (laughs) And you know what's worse than everybody talking about me? You know what's worse? Nobody talking about me. Thus, letter C. Can I be okay if nobody's giving me any attention at all? Good heavens, my fame is slipping. My likes and follows are down. Nobody shared that profound thought that I came up with that was going to cut through all of the political fog. And it's lying there like a dud. Can I be content if nobody's giving me any attention at all? Verse 13, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You okay if no one is speaking openly of you? Can you abide that? Be content there. Be content there. Jesus is about to draw a great deal of attention to himself. And that's quite okay because Jesus' fame is the only person whose fame ever mattered with eternal consequences. For you, can you obey Jesus in peace and quiet? The passage comes to mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. This is not on the outline, it's not on the screens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. I'm in 1 Thess 4, beginning in verse 9. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, northern Greece, where Thessalonica is. But we urge you, brothers, to do this and more. That is, love one another and now take the next step. Love one another and do even more. And aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs. To work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. and Be dependent upon no one. Don't love fame. Be content. Be content. Want to make somebody famous? Make Jesus famous. Because see, the fame of Jesus Christ is the message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for sinners. That all who come to him in repentance and faith can have new life. 
based on his sacrifice on the cross. And if you've never done that, the worst thing you can be is content. I pray that if you're outside of Christ, you will be in restless agony until you turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. I'd love to talk with you about that as soon as this morning, as soon as right now. I'll be right now in front. But Christian friend, effort is a good thing. Striving for the next step is a good thing. But contentment in God's will, in God's timing, and God's fame is a very good thing.